0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Haidt. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Remembering Darren
1: Watts. Ken Gets Shot. Science Fiction Cinema Essentials Part 1. And
0: The Richmond Vampire. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code... Ken and Robin 23, that spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com.
1: Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and Conspiracy Drenched
0: Over the Edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So, who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like
1: last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that.
0: Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products the two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness. Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's, it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just
1: head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products.
0: Then use the coupon code Robin 23 at checkout. We're going to open up, as usual, in the Gaming Hut, and you have heard us talk three times in January, but this is our first time actually uh, talking in January, because we banked some episodes in December, and therefore have something to catch up on. First of all, the thing that is roiling the world of gaming, the OGL, as of this recording, will no doubt be radically different 10 days from now when it (laughs) drops, so we're going to wait for our sterling analysis of uh, what's going on with the OGL, Ken, when, when we know uh, right, what is going on. when we can
1: gaze out over the battlefield and point our pipe stems to the larger and more colorful corpses.
0: Yes. Now, I'm not going to talk about rattling dice or thumping miniatures or Peter Frampton, because uh, in the Gaming Hut this week, unfortunately, we have a sort of a somber duty, which is to uh, remember our friend and colleague, Darren Watts. He was a former head of Hero Games. Uh, he was a stalwart of champions design and he was a, a friend and a colleague to me and a very close friend and colleague to you, Ken.
1: Yeah. He and I, uh, I think sort of came into the industry roughly the same time along a similar track. We hit it off when he lived out in San Francisco and I would go out for Dundercon and we became really good friends. And then as you know, the convention scene began to s- swirl around and I was between employers or uh didn't have a specific gig. He would always throw me the bone of putting me at the hero booth in his words as the booth cat. So <laughs> I would, I would be there sometimes and then would wander away in search of food or more exciting scratches. Um And that was his approach. But it also, I think he just enjoyed hanging out with me and God knows I enjoyed hanging out with him. So we wound up, you know, sharing rooms together at show after show after show. And there's only so many times you can braid a man's hair and talk about Justin Timberlake before he becomes basically your blood brother. And that's what Darren was to me. We had a very, very simpatico view of the game industry of the art of role-playing game design. We had a lot in common. He basically is responsible for everything useful that I know about baseball. And uh, he already knew more about, modern music and about comic books than I did even when I met him, and he just got smarter as the day went along. I assume I told him something. Uh, God knows what it was, but he kept uh, hanging out, and then uh, he was instrumental in making me the first designer uh, guest at Metatopia, which he was instrumental in organizing that uh, storied uh, game design conference run by uh, Avi and uh, Vinny in Morristown, and he was sort of the The manager of of that show uh, made sure that everything ran smoothly uh, while constantly welcoming new designers, rushing out for smoke breaks, and knowing all the bartenders by their first name, which was a a Darren superpower. When Hero Games was uh, sold, basically, he uh, wrote for the Doctor Who RPG for a while, was very proud of that work, and he co-designed the We Rate Dogs card game and then was working for Greater Than Games on their Sentinel Comics line. uh As the person who knew more about comics backstory than anyone, they hired him to create the imaginary backstory for Sentinel Comics. And he was always looking for more stuff to do. He's why there's first exposure at uh, Gen Con, and he was just an absolute cog in the industry and in the careers of more game designers than I can even remember. But, of course, Darren remember them all and he would bring five of them up to me and say here are five names and i would r- remember hey didn't i see you at metatopia and they'd say yes and someone else would say and you saw me at metatopia it's like i i'm not darren i can't do this <laughs> um it was uh just always a delight to see him and to uh drink a rum swizzle with him that was not his tipple but it was he, he, when he trained a bartender to make something right he would just sort of stick <laughs> We have a million, uh, bars that we wandered into and relatively fewer that we wandered right back out of. And it was just a constant joy, uh, to see him, especially, uh, to see him with his, his wife, Diane, who I had been friends with from, uh, the book expo tours and, uh, r- belatedly recognized, oh, that's, that's Darren's SO, uh, later wife. And then that friendship even deepened and it was just a delight. There was, I don't think I have a bad memory of Darren, which I I don't even know if that's true of anybody. And it's uh, certainly not true of Darren.
0: Yeah, he was someone who was part of our cohort, part of our generation. And mm-hmm. you always felt that he could always pop into the middle of any geek discussion that happened to be going on and would pick it up right in the middle and be absolutely welcome. And it would be great to have him in the middle of that. Or you could pop into the middle of a discussion that he was having and he was just... Part of the our, our sort of unusually collegial generation, and like a lot of people in that cohort, has worn a lot of hats over the years. Yeah. So, running a game company, managing conventions, and being in convention administration, and being a designer, and those uh, three things are not the same skill set. No, and there are lots of people who are, uh, for example, lots of game designers start running companies. And then you hear about them screwing that up. And Darren uh, managed to, you know, as you say, cover all of the bases and, and his role of being supportive of other designers, I think is sort of emblematic of the delight in geekly things and geek culture and. The art of game design that I will always uh, associate with him. Yeah, he was,
1: um, he was the complete guy. He had not just an opinion on anything. If I needed that, I have me, but he had usually a well considered opinion with uh, lots of uh, interesting backing to it. He had a podcast as well called Explain This Comics Guys, which was all about superhero continuity and how screwed up that is. Uh, so that was a bottomless well for him. And, uh, he also, uh, was a, a very good poker player, and I—I I think maybe not in my favorite memory of Darren because there is no such thing. But I will always remember actually beating Darren at poker thanks to basically being dealt four kings. You <laughs> know, I was there, dealt there three and I, in and I drew one. And Darren, of course, because he was a good poker player, had marked me down as a mediocre poker player and was. Baffled at how that happened. He just, he knew mathematically how it happened. He just couldn't believe it happened in a sense of cosmic righteousness. Yes. Well, and that it, was glorious.
0: Poker is an Ameritrash game. There's, yes, there's exactly. It's randomness.
1: It's two themed. Yeah, and uh, you're right. The delight that was Darren's constant companion. I mean, it's part of why he was the Waldorf to my Statler. We took delight in game uh industry being stupid when we were young and it didn't get any stupider even as we got less young and uh that joy that he felt as opposed to perfectly justifiable uh anger or irritation is it's sort of a model to everyone it was certainly a model to me
0: you can hear that joy not only in his own podcast but in episode 365 of this podcast when we interviewed him. And in that one, he talks about we rate dogs and you can see just how tickled he is to be working on something so delightful as that, but also tackling the intellectual design challenge of Mm -hmm. getting that right and uh, treating that seriously as a property and catching its vibe. And you can also hear, as he talks about the uh, Sentinel comics backstory Uh, as you suggested earlier, his love of convoluted comics uh, continuity. And his goal was to create something, because if you just sit down and write a superhero universe, it will make sense. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's one person uh, with an authorial vision and you will create all of this sort of cross logic and you will make it simple and understandable and accessible. And uh, he was sort of tackling the meta goal of, yeah, but what if there's, you know, it's actually decades and decades of, comics history of different artists piling stuff on and writers piling stuff on top of each other and uh you know retcons and uh things that get thrown at the window and reversals and he was you know not only delighting in the convolutions of marvel and dc continuity but trying to uh, replicate that uh, on an aesthetic level
1: yeah there was um he he loved things as they were and he loved pastiche he was a giant Fan of many art forms, dog shows, wrestling among them. He took me to my first and so far only Lucha show and showed me a tiny portion of the delight that he had in that. And he wrote with Jason Walters one of, the, I think, one of the best hero uh, supplements ever, Lucha Libre Hero, which is the model of how to do a topic uh, for a uh, generic role-playing system It in that it has everything you want, things you didn't know you wanted, and Nothing to scare off an, a newcomer, including too much heft. It's exactly the right length on exactly the right level. And that was that was Darren all over. He knew how much time something needed, and he knew how much detail something needed. And he always was willing to give both. And that was what it was like.
0: And that was a, a real design challenge, because if you're looking at something that is the thing you would think of as the rule set that you would start to do a Luca Libre game with taking hero and boiling it down would not necessarily be the first choice, but he had the design chops to meld those two things that you would think would not necessarily go together.
1: Yeah. He, uh, and he knew the hero system like the back of his hand, of course, that was sort of his, his native air, but he had, you know, chops all over the place in, in every sort of aspect of gaming. I've, I'd sat on so many focus groups with him at Metatopia where designers would say, uh, it's about angels. And then, Darren and I and uh, the other designers would sort of very methodically unpack what that meant. He had an encyclopedic breadth of knowledge and, again, just the sheer generosity to always apply it. Uh, it was it was a joy to hang out with him, as you say. A delight.
0: Well, it will be extra strange to do a uh, convention season uh, without him, and we uh, uh, were both uh, enriched to have known him. And even if you haven't heard of him until today and you're a role-playing gamer, you were also... Enriched by his presence and his work. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders. But these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their
1: powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will.
0: You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice.
1: Welcome to Alter Ego Mania, the newest setting for the gumshoe one-to-one system.
0: Featuring a quick-start rules guide printable problem and edge cards and a starter adventure alter ego mania contains
1: everything you need to run a one player one gm game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes exclusively available in pdf the exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages that can't get stuck in customs that's waiting for you right now at the pell press web store or drive through rpg
0: And now, on a lighter note, Ken, you got shot. I did. Welcome to Crime Blotter, the too-close-to-home edition. Mm -hmm. Very too-it was a block
1: from my home. That's how close it was to my home.
0: So, you've discussed this on social media. You Mm -hmm. also broke into the uh, UK journalism market by recounting your tale for, what was it, The Spectator?
1: The Spectator, yes. And a Spectator uh, editor, the features editor there, apparently saw my Facebook post somehow. I don't know what that was about i didn't ask and he said that was the most hilarious story of being shot i've ever read would you like to write it up for the spectator and i said i did not know that the spectator published true gunshot confessions but if they do what do they pay well it's
0: exotic (laughs) elsewhere in the world
1: right well you know whatever i I feel like there were 3600 shootings in chicago last year For whatever bizarre reason, I wound up in the spectator with my story of being shot in the leg. It was a uh, mugging that I I, want to say it went wrong, but it didn't go wrong from my perspective because I didn't get mugged and I didn't die. So that's right. But on the other hand, I was shot. So. So, say?
0: I'm sure you're going to be polishing this anecdote for, for years. But oh, God, yes. <laughs> in its coate form, Ken, start at the, at the beginning of, of the narrative. Yeah. Well, the
1: beginning of the narrative, I was co-working at uh, my friend and fellow game designer, Emily Cambius. Uh, you should check out her work on Itch, obviously. At her apartment, walking home around 3.10 in the morning, the car pulls up. A couple of guys boil out with guns. They demand my uh, bag, which had my laptop in it. And rather than think about that decision, I refused in a vulgar uh, form that we probably shouldn't say on a family podcast. And I dodged around the front guy and started running and they started firing. It sounded at the time like four or five shots. The investigating officer told me later they found nine shell casings in the intersection so eight shots missed me and one thumped me in the back of the leg and i thought oh a ricochet they realized that they had fired off these nine shots in hyde park which is a very heavily policed neighborhood in chicago right. so th-
0: their decision making also was uh, yeah in the, in the moment perhaps not the best all
1: right right and i you know there's a there's a book called the gift of fear by a guy named i think gavin de becker and he says that, and he's mostly writing to women who are at threat from all kinds of social situations, including from muggings all the way out. But he says that your subconscious was evolved to deal with predators for millions and millions of years. It is vastly better at deciding what to do than you are. So whatever your subconscious tells you to do in the moment is the right thing to do. And my theory is that if these guys are so tweaked up that they can't hit a not particularly rapidly moving game designer at that range, they may have had other decisions going on, and I was right to take off running. So that's my sort of takeaway from
0: it. They jump in their car. They, I say their car, they jump in the car. And so it was never clear which of your books they were objecting to. No. um, They didn't mention like bringing back the old botch mechanics or anything like that. No,
1: they, they, I mean, obviously they live the botch mechanics every day, but they um, did not have a specific complaint. Conversation didn't get that far. And so they uh, dive in their car, take off. I uh, let myself into the house. And then as I'm you know, shutting the door behind me, I look down at the floor and I think there's a lot of blood on my floor and immediately think there's a lot of blood on my leg. And then I realize, <laughs> oh, I, mm, because that's what the happened. blood is exiting your leg. Yeah. So Sheila had been awakened by the gunshots. She says, do you know what that was? And I said, yes, Th- that yes, was I me do. Being shot. I was shot in the leg. And she said, you know, well, did you call 911? And I said, oh, that, that, no, no. And so she looked But This calls, is why it's good to be
0: married, to have someone to think such, of the little things.
1: Such a good reasons to be married cropped up in the last two weeks. But yeah, she calls 911. The university cops and the Chicago cops get there within moments. They were probably already on the way to the multiply reported gunshots. One of the cops puts a tourniquet on my leg, which hurt worse than the gunshot wound. And they tell me later, that is how you can tell it was a good tourniquet. So well done yep. officer. And I get rolled into the uh, ambulance where there's a moment where I'm lying there thinking that my front door has been open an awful long time. I wonder if the cats have gotten out and, uh, nothing to be done about it. Then I uh, get rolled out to the, uh, university hospital. They put me into the trauma ward. They, um, uh, Cut off my wonderful pair of jeans, which is the probably the worst casualty of this is right. my pair now, of deer? jeans. Have you jeans. framed
0: those yet? Or Pardon me? Have you framed your jeans yet?
1: I don't know if Sheila has thrown them out. i bet she has. She may have felt that they do not have the aesthetic she's going for, the bloody garment. I don't <laughs> have any reason to shake them at a Democrat politician in the 1880s, I guess, so it won't help. But the uh trauma ward guys sort of roll me around looking for more bullet holes. They only find the two because the bullet went through and through. One bullet, two holes. One bullet, two holes. That's the exact ratio you want, by the way, I've, I've been told. Or nine bullets, zero holes, I guess, is the ideal ratio. But this is this is the, how we got it. But, but once you've been hit. Once yeah. you've been hit, then you resolve down to a different table. Then they, you know, they finish looking me over. They put a, a dressing on, take the tourniquet off. Thank God. Elevate the leg, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm you know put in a corner to think about what I've done for a while. I think about maybe having a nap. Shock is still going on. Adrenaline is still going on i'm not really in a ton of pain. An orderly brings me a cell phone so that I can talk to my wife. Sheila's been in the waiting room, no doubt in a crazy panic, so she gets to hear me babble like an idiot and thinks well that nothing, no damage there Then a detective Chicago police detective Knight shows up as uh, she introduces I'm detective Knight. I work the night shift. I immediately thought and told her that that sounded like a badly written basic cable show. We enjoyed a good laugh about that. Yeah, sure. She's never heard that one. No, I'm sure not. But, you know, this this is part of the the the, the thankless work of police departments to hear the same joke over yep. and over. Wise again. ass gunshot victim. Exactly. Wise ass gunshot victim. Well, you know, the network insisted that the gunshot victims be wise asses. I didn't write this. Right. So. She asked me for the rundown of what happened. I give it to her in slightly more detail than I've given our beloved audience. She, uh, goes off. Um, she, in, in fact, then comes back and says, Oh, one more thing. And I almost lose it. And
0: because she's, <laughs> she did that just for you, Ken. That was special. Just for
1: me. And so, because she forgot to ask about the weapon. And I say it looked like a nine millimeter automatic and maybe even smaller. And so she writes that down and then goes off. It turns out it was a nine millimeter. So, Th- that's 10 years of GURPS right there, there you go. There's
0: all your research paying off. Exactly.
1: Again. I couldn't describe the car, <laughs> but I can describe the damn gun. Uh, so good for me. Then I go into the emergency ward or room or whatever now, it is. Have you
0: been signed your, assigned your alias at this point yet? I have. One of the trauma orderlies
1: has told me that i am been checked in, but under an alias. And this is, I assume, standard operating procedure to prevent whoever shot you from coming to the hospital and trying to finish business. So good. Uh, And then when I'm rolled into the the room, the little TV screen that welcomes you to your emergency room has my alias name on it. And that (laughs) throws me a little bit. And then uh, I I have a a nurse uh, named Kayla who comes in. and. So are you
0: allowed to share your alias? I think that
1: OPSEC forbids me from sharing my alias. Was it a good one at least? Um, As I told a beloved author, Mark Senchik, on Facebook, it is not the alias of the action hero. It is the alias of the action hero's shot partner.
0: <laughs> so it was J- Joe Retirement
1: Age? was Joe your name? Joe Retirement Age, Joe Sail around the world on my yacht to live forever. Yeah, that's sort of what it is. So anyhow
0: So does everybody get the same alias? Is this
1: No, I think everyone gets a different alias. I think that's that's how they do it. Right. That would be a, a lovely um, you know, sort of Michelle Gondry moment though of you're some sort of uh, criminal and you're trying to so find... So, presumably,
0: they, did they have, like, a book of aliases or a computer program that serves up an alias for you?
1: I assume they probably have a computer program. This is program the detail I want to know. Much like... the like, hell with your leg? Right. Yeah, well, my leg is fine, but this alias question will nag at us forever. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> There are random searches that you can use that will pull up ethnically balanced names for a given jurisdiction. And I used those when I was coming up with the names of the NPCs in the back of the Vampire 5th edition book. I pulled up those random names. So maybe the hospital has that or maybe some board uh, intern is set the task of typing names out of elsewhere in the Chicago phone book into it. I didn't ask about the mechanics, as I mentioned, Robin. I was in shock. You were shock distracted at the time. By, by having been shot, which I've distracted you from. Right from the, the question of my. Although you know, if if I do get shot again, I am going to remember to ask about that because I know that that has raised a lot of questions. You in can my tell
0: mind. them you've already have an alias. Right,
1: I have an alias. Can you just use the same one? Yeah, and then they'll say no. That's also bad opsec. What is wrong with you? So, Nurse Kayla, you know, checks me over. She hooks me up with pain medication because by now my leg is beginning to hurt just a bit. And then, uh, as if to counteract that merciful act, she says, well, I think it's time you get up and walk around the room a bit. And I said, i not the medical professional here, but I was shot in the leg. And she says, yep, it's good for you. Get up and walk around.
0: Yeah, I'm sure she's prepared for that
1: response. Right, yeah. A practitioner of the George Patton School of Trauma Care. But obviously, she wins, so I got up and walked around, and as I laid back, she um, adjusts the IV, and she says to me, the words of wisdom that I think everyone who has heard this story has taken to heart, and these are the words of wisdom that Kayla has offered, and I will offer them to you, in lieu of my alias. I know people feel like they've lost too much blood. Don't worry, you're always making more, just like tears. <laughs> And I, you know, I don't judge books by covers, but I had not expected a goth sentiment of that depth to emerge from Kayla. I would have thought her aesthetic was a different direction. But there we
0: are. I I think you're a nurse in a trauma ward. Well, I mean, you know, this is cultural differences. But the idea that, you know, this happens enough that she has a tagline for it. Yeah. And probably every nurse has their own. It's probably, you know, they have to compare them, make sure they don't have the same one.
1: Right. And again, is it? I, I, I feel like. Maybe this is, you know, a, a moment of graduation as you come up with your tagline. It emerges. It's like yeah. a, a Zen school. It's not like you're assigned a tagline by some faceless bureaucracy. I like right. to believe that anyway. I, I I think that was pure Kayla at that moment.
0: Right. So, so listener, if you hear this and you got shot elsewhere and got the same line, don't rain on our parade. Yeah. We don't want to hear that this is like the how is it tasting of being shot.
1: Yeah, right. Don't Don't burn Kayla for your yeah. selfish pleasure at wrecking things. So anyway, eventually there's, there's no more badinage to be had. Kayla finishes, uh, wrapping me up. The resident has come by and looked and said, yep, you got shot in the leg. All right. All right. And, uh, I am told that my pain medication will consist of acetaminophen, but I'm allowed to swap it out with ibuprofen. And I said, again, I'm not the medical professional in this conversation, but I was shot. And they said, well, and this is another Kayla wisdom. She said, studies uh, have shown that Acetaminophen and ibuprofen are just as good as opiates, and I said, "I don't know about the studies, but they were carried out by someone who has never had an opiate because that's just wrong." And she said, "Well, (laughs) funny story, that's all you're getting." So I, I don't know if it was the you know references to Patton or the basic cable or whatever that prevented me from going up a rung, but this is this is my life is to be maxing out on over-the-counter painkillers for the next couple of weeks.
0: So, in a a recent episode, uh, we told the story of a Toronto foundational political uh, figure, George Brown, who made a big joke of the fact that he got shot in the leg, and then admittedly in an era before Kayla and antibiotics Mm -hmm. uh, then died. So, just to like deal with the the possible negative, uh, magical uh, resonance of that, assure people now that as of January 17th. How's your leg and how are you feeling? My leg shows no sign of gangrene. It,
1: it's very, very bruised. That's something right. that happens. No
0: presidential doctors have poked nope. their fingers. I, at I, have,
1: I have not allowed President Garfield's doctor to use his experimental bullet removing device. The bullet removed itself quite efficiently. You know, it, it feels like in between megadoses of ibuprofen, it feels like the world's worst muscle cramp with a side of being hit by a baseball bat. People describe being shot as having a red-hot poker pass through you. I feel like between the adrenaline and the shock, I missed the red-hot poker part. Right. I I just got the, oh, man, this really hurts part. Right.
0: So can you start referring to this as your lead Charlie horse? I feel like I can start predicting the weather
1: pretty soon. I'll be able to say, oh, my old leg, you know. And a beloved uh, game designer and friend of the podcast has already sent me a amazing cane with vertigreezed uh, fittings on the handle so I can wrap it on doors like an angry Victorian uh, gentleman. <laughs> just what we needed for you to
0: have an affectation. An
1: affectation. I'm trying to avoid using it as an affectation, but if you'd seen the cane, you—that that is a lost battle already. But hopefully, I won't need that for uh, any great length of time. I guess sort of the happy ending is that uh, when we got back to the house, we discovered that uh, Black Philip is not a vampire. He's just a demon cat he did not lick up the giant pool of my blood, despite, no doubt, a great deal of temptation on well, his part. Well, cats are finicky. Yeah. It was like, oh. They were tender vittles' blood. There, type me right? please. Uh.
0: So, is this uh, going to put a cramp in your convention travels? Are you going to have to skip anything?
1: Not as far as I know. My next convention trip is to the Anyone's Game Protospiel in Sarasota on the 17th of February. I am... Pretty sure, not to George Brown this situation, but I'm pretty sure that by that time, the cane will entirely be an affectation if I'm still using it.
0: And, and if not, it's Florida. They've got lots of carts. Exactly. Carts they, they
1: have uh, ample, ample opportunities for the doughy white community to roll around. So,
0: Well, there you go, friends of Ken. You've uh, heard the story in a verbal format now, and uh, we all feel uh, like uh, we were there, and we all continue to wish... Your uh, lead Charlie horse, a speedy recovery. The Best of Ask the Gellon is now available at DriveThruRPG.
1: All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and Six Guns role playing game Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Asphageln on drive through. You may not have heard this, but I got shot. Join such essential Patreon backers as Oli Toivinen, Tony Kemp, Alex Johnston, Corey Welch, and David Mesgary. The whir of the projector, the smell of freshly popped popcorn, the smell of whatever that weird stuff is they put on freshly popped popcorn, and the sticky sensation under our feet welcome us once more to the middle seats in the center row of the Cinema Hut, where fresh from our triumph in the horror cinema Essentials. Now available as its own separate audiobook. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. On uh, Bandcamp, ask for it by name. We are now heading into a a, a genre that I think has slightly choppier waters, uh, at least at first. The science fiction film. We had a couple of requests from beloved listeners and backers of the show for another one of these, and so this is that other one of these, Robin. So
0: Right, so as soon as as soon as we brooded this amongst each other, questions came up And I think this is going to be our whole through line for this entire series, which is that science fiction turns out to be a permeable genre. Yeah. And I think in the process of telling the story of science fiction cinema, we're going to be examining what genre is and isn't. And so, annoyingly, I think we're going to have to start, even before George Méliès shoots a rocket into the eye of the man in the moon, we're going to have to deal with some definitions, not only of what is a science fiction film, but what is genre anyway. And uh, we're going to discover along the way that science fiction oozes along like an alien amoeba and sometimes is one thing and, and sometimes is another. So the first question we had was, is this just science fiction or is it science fiction and fantasy? And I with my imperious gaze, declare that we are going to do fantasy some other time, because I think it's weird to have something called science fiction essentials and then have, you know, Willow or the uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I right. That's just odd.
1: Yeah, it's messed up. They're next to each other in the books sh- in the bookstore, but that is not our byword here.
0: Right. And so let's talk about what it is, is though, that makes a genre, because there's a big area of overlap with what we just did with the Horror Essentials series because science horror is a horror subgenre and often the distinction between what is science fiction and science horror is, well, it's what we're going to explore. So certain things we're going to have to mention again that we talked about in uh, the Horror Essentials. For example, James Whale's Frankenstein, I would argue that the Mary Shelley novel is more of a science fiction foundational science fiction story than the James Whale movie adaptation which is more clearly horror but how exactly do we nail that down and what is the distinction of those things how do we do more than just say well this one feels a little more horrory or this doesn't right. but definitely the mad scientist is a type of monster who recurs in horror and i think some of those films are more Also science fiction than others, right? Yeah. And
1: there's ample horror that is about alien invasion. And that includes, you know, foundational horror, like, say, The Call of Cthulhu or Whisper in Darkness. Those are horror stories. uh, Absolutely. War of the Worlds by Wells was, uh, he called it a scientific romance which means it's a science story, but it's also fun. And yeah, he was Worlds, meaning
0: romance in the older sense of adventure.
1: Right, yes. And um, uh, War of the Worlds is quintessentially exactly on the borderline or is exactly the Venn diagram of science fiction and horror. And you can't talk about science fiction film. You could maybe talk about science fiction film without Frankenstein, but you absolutely can't talk about it without War of the Worlds and all the other alien invasion movies because they are... What science fiction mainstream film was in America for about a decade. So you can't avoid horror. And I guess what we can do is when we talk about James Whale this time, we will talk about Frankenstein as it relates to science fiction films of that time and of the future and of the science fictional elements of even the movie Frankenstein, which are, you know, the fundamentally the question of if there's no laws of nature then what can we do and that what can we do is a big science fiction question and i think it's one of the biggest science fiction questions
0: right and also one of the issues that we're grappling with here is that genre itself is not always so easy to nail down because there are different elements that make up genre in its simplest sense genre is a set of expectations that readers or viewers in this case bring to a work and they are expectations that the uh, filmmaker is taking into account. Although to what extent they're doing so at the beginning of a genre is another question. And we'll get to that when we uh, deal with the earliest science fiction films. But not every genre is defined by having exactly the same elements. Some of the elements you look at to see if something it falls within one genre or another or both is first of all, Theme, and I think this is where we're going to see the difference between science horror and science fiction. Theme is probably the thing that makes a science fiction work, in that it is somehow about our relationship with technology and/or the future. And when it is fear of the future, as it <laughs> so very often is, if mm-hmm. it's a cautionary tale, that is where your science horror begins. There's also premise is an element of uh, genre, and there are certain Sort of staple premises that emerge in the genre. And I think it's often the premises that make for a subgenre. So you have your story of exploration, for example, or your story of an invention gone awry. And we'll find uh, different premises as we go. And also, once you have a premise, you also have an implicit structure that plays out and you expect certain narrative beats to occur. And again, depending on the genre, You may know what the conclusion should be. A romantic comedy, you know, must end in a union of the couple of some kind. If it's an older one, ends in a marriage. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a tone or mode. In horror, the tone is one of fear and terror. That's one of the elements that pretty much any uh, work of horror, even a comical one like Ghostbusters, uh, traffics in fear. Well, the tone the emotional tenor of science fiction isn't locked down like that.
1: Right. It can be all over the map.
0: Right. There are romantic science fiction movies like the Soderbergh remake of Solaris. There are uh, enigmatic and puzzling ones. There's funny ones. There's
1: action-adventure ones. Right. It's all over
0: the map. Right. So this one is not a defining element of, of science fiction, whereas it is in other genres. Such as a romance, as you say. Right. Then you come to the trappings of the genre, right? A... Uh, Western will have horses and cowboy hats and six shooters. And I think often the trappings of science fiction will qualify it for membership in this list. So, if you've got a spaceship, if you've got a ray gun, if you've got robots, something that otherwise might be a fantasy, that might be a fairy tale, is suddenly science fiction because it has those outward layers, even if it's also referencing those other mythic things. And I think everybody knows which movie I'm talking about there. And then we can we have sort
1: of things that are existing on the borderland. Psionic powers can be pure science fiction. They can be pure fantasy. They can be fantasy psionic powers in a science fiction universe. I'm looking at you, Star Wars. They can be horror. The horror of of telepathy. The horror of having your mind read. But it's still might be presented as a science fictional experiment gone wrong or used by bad people. And so that sort of a thing can can float all around. Time travel is another element of a science fiction story. But of course, we can all remember things like somewhere in time where you just sort of hope real hard and go back in time. And I don't think anyone would call that a science fiction film, even though it is, yes. if we had a time travel film essentials, it would be absolutely
0: beyond it. Right. Because that's your, your magic realism as a, as a genre, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, part of the constellation of of fantasy off over there in that other corner that we're going to get to eventually. Mm -hmm. Another element that may or may not define a genre is period, right? A swashbuckler, you know, is going to take place in the era of uh, rapiers and primitive guns, muskets, Mm -hmm. if you will. Right. And here in science fiction, almost anything set in the imagined future is going to Count as science fiction because it's
1: an attempt to extrapolate or to warn.
0: Right, there are some odd exceptions there. For example, I saw a recent, you know, Korean crime drama that's set in a near future after an economic collapse. It's about a dystopia, but there's nothing sciency about it, so it's not a hundred percent. And so that gets you also into the question of, you know, a dinosaur movie is that science fiction? Yes if you go and find the dinosaurs on a scientific expedition and they exist in our world, or if somebody cooks up some new dinosaurs and they run around on an island and get out of their enclosure, it's not science fiction. However, if Raquel Welch is hanging around with dinosaurs back in dinosaur times, which as we know, Raquel Welch absolutely did Mm -hmm. again, not science fiction. So the presence of dinosaurs, that's more of a documentary, I think. Yeah. So that's, dinosaurs are not a reliable trapping. Mm -hmm. You also have to have, you know, an expedition or a time machine or DNA to make it uh, science fiction. And the other element that defines some genres, for example, film noir is also defined by its stylistic choices, by its expressionistic lighting and perhaps the use of voiceover. And we're going to find a couple of examples of film noir science fiction, Mm -hmm. but there is no single overriding style, I think, that makes something science fiction or not.
1: Yeah, and even something that is, I mean, there are films that are almost just excuses to shoot something in a science fiction-y style, but they often are doing other things than science fiction as an intentional confutation of those expectations. And that, again, sets us up on another Boundary question, you know, is to what extent is philosophy science, I guess, because there's a lot of philosophy fiction movies that have a sort of a scientific framework, but maybe are actually just existential uh, tugging at your chin and thinking hard movies.
0: Right. Is every dystopia science fiction Are the Mad Max films? Science fiction. They show advances in flaming guitar technology.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, and they are, and post Holocaust is, you know, the other uh, science fiction subgenre invented by Mary Shelley. So, right, it would be uh, wrong of us to read it out of the genre uh, on that basis. So,
0: I guess what we've done here in establishing the groundwork is to show how permeable the borders of some genres are, and how I can't think of is there another genre more permeable than science fiction i don't think so
1: i mean i i feel like uh horror gets closest but horror at least has the tone it has the unity of tone the unity of tone uh, whereas with science fiction it, it, similarly to film noir we talked about on that there's a lot of things that go into it and you start making little checklists and saying oh that just had the slanted camera but it was happy or uh, it just had the, you know, voiceover, but it didn't expose the horrible nature of mankind. But with science fiction, we have a similar sort of a of a plasticity. And also, we have 80 more years of science fiction than we had of uh, film noir at its height. So,
0: right. And we're also going to have a phenomenon where the literary version of this genre, which spend a lot of time looking down on (laughs) the cinematic side of the equation is actually developing in parallel so that some of the first films we're going to be talking about next week are occurring before really any of the sort of classic or foundational works of science fiction that get you past Shelley and uh, Wells and Verne. Mm -hmm. And so that's also going to be an interesting thing to look at and is also going to sort of indicate why, many of the precursor films that we're going to look at next week are much further off from being also recognized classics of cinema than is even the case for horror.
1: Right. that um Horror uh, comes out of the gate very, very strong. Uh Science fiction, it takes a while to get its legs under it, I feel like. And I think we'll notice that as we go through the first, what do we want to say, 40 years of science fiction film that it's it's going to take a while before we get to a real banger. Let's right. just say that. Well,
0: Metropolis. I gonna say right. Metropolis starts things off well. But there's also the question of film technologies. And it takes a lot longer to make compellingly realized science fiction films than right. it does horror. Because for horror, some makeup and a dark corner and uh, some armadillos running around on the floor of Dracula's castle, you're already there. Whereas it takes quite a while to get the special effects to uh do anything that uh resembles what's in the uh what's in the pulps. So this has been all preamble, no amble, mm-hmm. but next week we'll be back to pick this up uh, with a trip to the moon. Delta Green Iconoclast: a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real.
1: Mosul in 2016 held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime,
1: and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity.
0: Available now in PDF.
1: Or in glistening hardback.
0: It's time once more to venture into that most ill-defined, dare I say permeable, of huts. The hut where, uh, when we look out the window, we see the alien big cat screaming on the moor. This time around, the... A gray alien and the Nordic alien are drinking their kombucha in disinterest because although recently we've been talking a lot about UFOs, we're going to go to the sort of other side of the Elliptony Hut equation and once more look at a uh, a vampire, uh, this time at the request of a beloved backer, Bob Grider. And here we're going to look at a relatively recently surfaced urban legend has a backstory But the story really only started relatively recently. So Bob says the Richmond vampire allegedly run out of England in the 1800s for vampirism and also linked in folklore to the 1925 Church Hill Tunnel collapse. But people in Richmond only started talking about this vampire relatively recently.
1: Yeah, it's an urban legend that the uh, local Richmond uh, magazine that I sort of read the backstory of it in, the author says, maybe the late 1950s, probably, definitely by the 1960s, the urban legend springs up that the mausoleum of W. W. Poole, uh, which is a cool Masonic Egyptian mausoleum, it looks very very uh, buffy, that that was the site of a vampire. Right.
0: And the lesson is, if you're Mausoleum is too cool. You're going to attract wagging tongues. Exactly. This is in the Hollywood
1: Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, and W.W., because he was an accountant, and so he knew how much it cost to carve William Wortham pool above a tomb lintel, uh, just did W.W., so of course what you have is two cool vampire fangs looking down at you uh, with those uh, sharp peaky Ws. And the reputation led to some vandalism and some kids messing around. Uh, that started in the eighties, and it's even today you will get stories of people poking around the WW Pool Mausoleum. And as Bob Greider mentions, WW Pool was allegedly run out of England for being a vampire. Well, it's so allegedly that it never happened. <laughs> he was born in probably Jackson, Mississippi, in 1842. He moved to Virginia in 1865 married a nice lady named Alice Perdue in 1866. He was a Freemason, and he was the accountant for the Bryan family, who were local uh, bigwigs in Richmond. They owned and published the Richmond Times Dispatch. Alice dies in 1913, which is when he builds that tomb. I think if you look at that tomb, you could have picked that date within a couple of years that was very 1913 looking he dies in 1922 and the only supernatural thing about his death is that he dies the same day as his best friend who is also a mason and so the area masonic community basically emptied out the whole city for those two funerals so if you were trying a a jewel theft that would have been the day to do it in richmond so so far so not vampirey uh the Church Hill Tunnel is a railroad tunnel that runs under the titular Church Hill that had been uh, built in the 1870s. They used it until about 1901 when they changed uh, the route and then the increase in rail traffic uh, meant that they wanted to dig out that tunnel and brace it up for modern train usage and it was while they were doing that that it collapsed. On October 2nd, 1925, it trapped the work engine and 10 flat cars in the tunnel. 200 men escaped. Three men were officially killed and buried. The Various folklore sites and people who talk about this say they may not have been taking as good an inventory of all the workers on this train (laughs) line. The Baltimore and Ohio maybe didn't care so much about the
0: you know, uh, day laborers in Virginia. Well, your that's own not picture the craziest man. point anyone makes in yeah. relation to this story. Right. So here we have your classic sort of two things plus some make ups, equal conspiratorial, connect the dots, pareidolia. And here's how you get weird events. So you've got cool looking tomb, then you've got this local disaster widely separated in time, but (laughs) can, But, at the time, in 1925, there
1: is at least an oral legend of a bloody fanged creature that runs out of the tunnel with its skin hanging in flaps from a muscular frame. It seems insensible to pain, and it flees to Hollywood Cemetery and goes to Earth in the pool tomb. And this is the sort of
0: nugget of the story now now when you say at the time there is an oral account how do we know that and how do we we know that people asked much later say oh
1: i heard it at the time and they tell some version of that story now a guy named gregory maitland who's a folklorist dug out the fact that a fireman named benjamin mosby was horribly burned one can assume his teeth were smashed up by the falling rubble and he died in a hospital and was buried in Hollywood Cemetery, and that there is definitely reports of him showing up, asking about his wife, and being taken in the taxi that had carried the reporter that had this story back to the hospital, which is where he died. So, the notion of this sort of sighting of this bloody, jambled-up-teeth creature with the uh, hanging skin flaps, according to Maitland's theory, is what set people thinking that there was a connection between the tunnel collapse, and a vampire.
0: So that, that was the dot in the connect the dots. Right, and because he
1: is buried in Hollywood Cemetery, or as they used to say back in the day, he's gone to Hollywood, you would hear, oh, this horrible figure, this bloody monstrosity, it went to Hollywood afterwards, and someone would say, oh, it ran to the cemetery, and it must have hidden in that cool vampire tomb. And this is Gregory Maitland's theory for how those two events get hooked up. Now, we only have Gregory Maitland's word that they were hooked up before he came up with that theory, but I don't see any reason to distrust Gregory Maitland. They seem like a A top-notch fellow, as far as I'm concerned.
0: And with presumably respectable size margins on any public. It was a website, so not at all. (laughs) But it was not their website.
1: It was someone who was very grateful to Gregory Maitland for sort of gently setting them right, if I'm reading between the lines correctly. They were all excited about the Richmond vampire, and Gregory Maitland said, oh my god, not this again, and sort of... Patiently explains what's going on. Right.
0: So in game terms, this is absolutely the sort of thing that the esoterrorists springboard off of as urban legends with gruesome details and weird pasts that are at least enough of a record of stuff to believe so that they could very easily start to manifest things around that uh, mausoleum. And then eventually they, you know, there's even off the rack monsters in the esoteric book that can spring up and resemble these blood-covered, flappy-skinned, fanged vampires, and you begin to uh, manifest them and create panic, and uh, that's your backstory right there. It's so straightforward that you would need to add something to it in order to have enough of a mystery for the Ordo Veritatis agents to investigate. And I feel like
1: the way that you complicate this is that, I mean, this graveyard, by the way, it holds Jefferson Davis, it holds James Monroe, it's a very fancy graveyard. So, the Ordo Veritatis could be uh, using this as a way to get at, you know, Jefferson Davis is the obvious lightning rod for cognitive dissonance uh, for people who venerate him as a president for some reason. Cognitive dissonance goes all the way back. But you could also imagine a Edgar Allan Poe connection, He's not buried in Richmond. He's buried in Baltimore, but he hung out in Richmond an awful lot. And, of course, he has stories about mysterious teeth and collapsing bad situations in tunnels. And he has stories of even of proto-vampirism, such as The Man in the Crowd or William Wilson. And so you could say that the uh, esoterror cell in Richmond is thinking, well, anyone can do this vampire. We've got him... He's out running around, scaring people, messing with the kids. But if we can tie it into Edgar Allan Poe, then we get eyeballs. Then it becomes a giant sensation and we can start launching our, you know, uh red deaths and our pits and the pendulum and our black cats and God knows what all other kinds of things we have planned because esoterists, like everyone, are are name droppers, and so the the notion that if you are bringing it in via Poe and you go back and the story is this urban legend at the basis of it, that will seem more exciting. Uh, I think, or at least more more layered than if you're starting with the Richmond Vampire and you say, oh yeah, Richmond Vampire, hangs out at the tomb, used to be a fireman. I know him. And there you go.
0: Right. In the Yellow King, this is normal now. The mausoleum, because of its Masonic connections, uh, could have a yellow sign on it and can be a portal to uh, Carcosa. The uh, creature that is periodically seen could be a vampire since they're in those games or some other a uh, weird Carcosin entity in aftermath. The fact that it is uh, possibly an alternate portal when all the main portals have been destroyed, uh, it could be, then be an object of contention as uh, local uh, revanches from the Castine uh, regime try to uh, boot it up as a as a portal and uh, get uh, uh through it. If we go to Trail of Cthulhu. I think we're looking at a Lovecraft, you know, he was only vampire adjacent, he maybe does want to do a full-on vampire, but we know that if there's a mausoleum in a uh, Lovecraftian universe, who's going to be down in there but ghouls, right? And also
1: with, you know, various famous savants and and uh, powerful folks, your Joseph Kerwin squad, your uh, resurrection men will be digging up bodies there and perhaps WW Pool learned a few things about the Bryan family that area cultists want for blackmail. Uh, remember that's what Kerwin did with the dead people back in the 1770s. So they dig up WW pool. They uh, resurrect him with his salts. They get useful information about the Bryan family and then they get distracted or whatever. And his revenant corpse goes running around. And what do we know from Charles Dexter Ward? That Revenant Corpses like, they like blood. So maybe W.W. W. Poole is a vampire because he was resurrected by a uh, Kerwin folk. Right.
0: Or alternately, he could be the sorcerer and the confusion about the person who was run out of England for being a vampire that's somebody else who then Poole managed to uh, enthrall and steal the life essence out of. And there's some new person named, uh, you know, Walter Poole, who's you know, young and hip in the 1930s and is maintaining his immortality by keeping a vampire in his mausoleum and going back and, you know, drawing essence or salts out of him every so often. And uh, that slowly starting to, you know, leak away. It's uh, been, uh, you know, a couple of generations starting to run out of vampire and he's kind of looking for a new one. And maybe that's where the uh, investigators come in is that he's identified Another, I don't know if Lovecraft would have a perfectly innocent vampire in in uh, one of his stories, but what the heck, we can add stuff. Yeah, and it may be that you uh, quite strangely have to protect someone who you know very carefully, you know, never kills the living and you know vampirizes with consent and all of that, but that uh, the immortal sorcerer pool has identified as uh, the next person who's uh, going to spend a couple of generations uh, in his mausoleum being slowly drained of life essence to create his uh, immortality. And as
1: long as we're blaggarding
0: W.W. Poole, we could point
1: out that his wife dies in 1913. So he has to build this cool magic tomb. Maybe that's what he had to do in order to imprison that vampire, but to become an immortal sorcerer with a, even with a vampire, you've got to have a human sacrifice every so often. And when his quote unquote, best friend dies nine years later on the same day that he quote unquote dies, that's another sacrifice. And then nine years later is 1931. And now he needs to kill someone else that he's great friends with and loves that is valuable to him in the world. And maybe he's spent this period of time becoming best friends or a romantic partner of one of the investigators. Uh, and that's your opening. That's your opening gun. And that could also be your opening gun, for example, to a, a nice black agents game, either in the 1930s or now that this guy, W.W. W. Poole, in order to keep his immortality, which he battens off via a vampire, has to kill someone he loves every nine years. And this is the way you discover there's vampires, there's sorcerers, there's immortality, the Masons are involved somehow, and uh, that starts you off, and you can go all kind of different directions. If he's in Richmond, you could... Uh, you know, it's just up the road to the Nationals, uh Military Industrial Complex, so if you have a, a CIA vampire program, it could be part of that, or that could just start you off, and the vampire did indeed come from England, and you think, well, let's go to England and see uh, what made him, and maybe it was Mason's.
0: And we can add some sort of undead sorcerer romance to this by suggesting that, in fact, Alice's death was faked as well, that he originally acquired the secrets of immortality not for himself but to keep her alive after she got sick. Right. And then, you know, he has to also become immortal in order to continue to keep that magic alive and to continue to stick around with her. Of course, you would want to change these names so that you wouldn't be uh, besmirching the name of an actual, you know, historical family who know that have descendants and (laughs) don't want you um, messing with them for your uh, cheap uh, horror thrills. But uh, uh, that's easily enough done. So I think now that we've got a whole raft of different possible uh, uses for the Richmond Vampire in various games, we can declare our mission uh, for this week accomplished. Ken's going to continue to uh, rest his leg. We're going to be back with actual talking about some movies in our science fiction uh, cinema essentials, plus more gaming and weirdness. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our
1: Patreon at patreoncom backslash Ken and Robin
0: Make sure that this podcast is not run out of England or anywhere else for that matter, alongside such supportive backers as Fred Kish, Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover, Jack Gulick, Michael Curtis, and Mike Merles wear this show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com user slash ken robin check out our new classic design unicorn with a better armor class on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff